0: Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we started a
1: series on the single life last week. And this topic that we're looking at today, dating and sex, it, it's, such a, it's such a dominant part of uh, the life of a lot of single folks Thinking about these things, thinking about who am I going to date? What does that look like in my life? Thinking about um, sex, sexual purity. How does what does that mean? That we just wanted to kind of speak right toward it. Now, this is a huge, huge topic. Uh, it's more than I can cover in one sermon, really. Though I'm going to try. Thomas did a six or seven week series on dating in February and March. Uh, And I encourage you, all of those Tuesday night sermons, or at least most of them, are online. I think we have um, the Christ Covenant Young Adults on the podcast if you're interested in more on this. And as Blake mentioned, we have a little podcast we do every week called The Sermon Talk Back. We really want to hear from you. We want to hear your questions. Uh, And we'll try to get to any question you ask. So feel free. You can even, during the sermon... Text in to that number. It's on your bullet in there. You can use the QR code. Uh, Feel free to text us in numbers and we'll try to, or text us in questions. We'll try to get to those on the podcast uh, that we record tomorrow. But I want to do kind of three things. And again, these are massive. I want to try to answer three questions for you as we look at this idea of sex and dating. First of all, what is humanity? Okay, big question. Secondly, what is dating? And then third, what is sex? So let's look at what is humanity. A fundamental choice that really defines everything about you is where you draw your sense of identity from, okay? And, and right now, before we kind of get into these things about sex and dating, I, I want to kind of part the ways, right? Some of you understand that your identity primarily is from the lord that god created you and that he has given you an identity and a purpose that he has created you for the purpose of his glory and and the things that are true of you from your gender to your work to who you get married to that they're all part of the story that god is telling through your life that your identity comes from the lord now we live in an age however where it says identity is primarily not from the Lord, rather it is self-determined. I have a self-determined identity. I, I make a way for myself. I, I create an identity for my own life. And what's happened in kind of the, the current moment that we live in is that we have failed to understand that the gifts that God has given us are gifts from God. And so rather than looking, being able to look through these gifts and seeing the true source of our identity, which is the Lord, we get enamored by or distracted by the gifts, the creations, rather than the creator. So, for example, I've got a lot of friends that work in national parks or like work as river guides, and a lot of these folks, they kind of worship, they really do kind of worship the creation. They're so enamored by the gift, and for good reason. I mean, you go to the Grand Canyon. You go to these national parks. You, I love to do this. You go and look at a mountain range. You go and see an amazing sunset, and you think, ah, all is well. You're, you're, you, you, you are enamored by this beauty, and rightly so, but God's design was that the gift, the gift of natural beauty, for example, would actually point you past the natural beauty Pass the gift to the giver of that gift. But oftentimes, people get distracted by the gift, and we forget about the gift giver. Now, in Atlanta, most of you aren't like river guides, but we do the same kind of thing. In Atlanta, uh, you've heard me say this, one of the main idols of Atlanta is work. Now, again, work is a gift from God, Right? If you look at the first couple of chapters of Genesis, there is this word, this verb, that's used over and over and over again. God gave the man the garden, right? There's beauty in there. God gave the man the job to work and to keep it. God gave the man a spouse. God gave, God gave, God gave purpose, God gave work, God gave provision, God gave, God gave. Identity comes from the Lord, purpose comes from the Lord. But in a city like Atlanta, We can see the gift of work, and it is a gift. It's good to put your hand to work and to to be a part of creating culture and to to be a part of ordering the things that God has made. But these gifts can become so distracting that you can find your primary identity in your work and you won't look past the gift to the gift giver. And we also live in an age today where sex has become this. We live in an age of the sexual revolution, That's what it's called. Now, kind of the like kingpin, if you will, or one of the main figures of the sexual revolution is Hugh Hefner, of course, who started Playboy magazine. And, and he said something that was very clarifying. He, he says this, sex is the driving force on the planet. We should embrace it, not see it as the enemy. Now, this is really telling, right? What is he saying? Sex is a gift, right? As Christians, we understand that. The Bible begins with a naked man and a naked woman singing to one another, right? Christians aren't afraid of sex, but we understand that it is a gift that's been given to us by a gift giver that's ultimately designed to point us back to that giver, but, but Hefner here As we see, he's become distracted by the gift. The gift is the driving force. The gift is the purpose. It's the driving force on the planet. Now, really what Hugh Hefner was doing here is he was popularizing uh, a viewpoint that, that first really was started to be developed by a philosopher named Sigmund Freud who really believe this, that kind of the driving force of humanity, the thing that drove us, the God, of, if you will, of our identity was our sexual desires. You are defined by your sexual desires. Now, this was just a philosophy a hundred years ago. Now, it's very mainstream. In fact, this month is a great example, right? This month is called what? Pride month. If you are a homosexual, right? It's not just that's just behavior, it's saying no, that is your identity. That is who you are. That is your fundamental source of identification. And I just wanna say to my friends in here that struggle with same-sex attraction, this philosophy, this Freudian philosophy it, it, it is sold as something that's liberating. It's actually incredibly oppressive. You are more than your sexual desires. Those are not what define you. God has said that you are a man or a woman made in His image to display His glory. That is who you are. That is your calling. So don't be distracted by the gift and lose sight of the one who has given us all of these gifts. Now, this is actually not a new thing. This was going around in Paul's day too. In fact, we see an example of it in the sermon or in the passage that we looked at today. Verse 13 What Paul is doing there is he's actually quoting a popular song. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It would be like if I said, you know, I can't get no satisfaction or if I said, um, you know, the times they are a-changing or for my fellow millennials, shake it off or something like that. He's quoting a popular song to make a point, and and he's saying the philosophy of the day is food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, the body is meant for sex and sex for the body. And then, of course, he goes to correct that understanding. But, But this understanding of being distracted by the gift always happens in a culture where you forget who the true gift giver is and that he's given us these gifts for our good and to enjoy in a way that ultimately brings him glory. So whether it's the Grand Canyon, (laughs) or whether it's your work, or whether it's your sexual desire, we are all prone to this, to be distracted by the gifts and not to find our identity in the gift giver. So what is humanity? What is your identity? Are you self-determined? Are you self-determined? Are you someone that has to go and work hard enough or be a part of beauty or be sexually fulfilled and that's what's going to give you an identity? Or are you someone who's been created by a holy and sovereign and glorious God for his purpose? Now, how you answer that question will determine how you hear the rest of the sermon. If you answer it the first way, the rest of the sermon won't make a lot of sense to you. If you answer it the second way, I think it'll be incredibly helpful. So if that's what is humanity, the second thing I want to get to is what is dating? Now again, I want to be brief here. I think this is an area where the Christian church has not been served very well. There's a lot of books, for example, on marriage, but there's not a lot of books on dating Before I kind of jump into this, though, I do want to say just very clearly, we're going to talk more about this next week, marriage is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate, right? Your life is more than marriage. Your life is more than sex. The greatest human that has ever lived, the one who has lived with all fulfillment and all joy, the one who has lived this life better than anyone else was never married. I'm talking about Jesus the Lord. He never had sex. So those things are gifts, but they're, they're not ultimate. They're not ultimately identifiers. But you can't understand dating properly unless you do have some understanding of marriage. So Let me give you a, a little definition of marriage, and I'm not going to have time to explain the whole thing. In fact, I really am only going to talk about one word of the definition. But let me give you the definition. Christian marriage is a whole life Lifelong covenant made between one man and one woman meant to be a display of Christ and the church. Now again, there's a lot there that I could get to and that I have gotten to. Again, if you want to listen to old sermons, we did a series called the it's called Great Marriage, I think two years ago, and we dive into a lot of this. But the the one word that I want to define for you here is the word covenant. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. Now, what is that? And the the easiest way that I can define this for you is a covenantal relationship. I think we have another slide here. Is a relationship that's fundamentally grounded in the ontology, in the essence of the relationship, not in the function of the relationship, okay? it's grounded in that the relationship exists, not in the functions of the relationship. God called Abraham and his offspring to be his people. Why? Because God called Abraham and his offspring to be his people. It was a relationship based on the relationship. It was a covenantal relationship. And and I like to juxtapose this juxtaposed to a marketplace relationship. Now, a lot, most of the relationships that we have are marketplace relationships. They're relationships that are dependent on the function of the relationship, the exchange that happens within the relationship. So, I've given you all this analogy before, but I've got this Filson bag. If you know me, you know I love Filson products. My parents gave me a Filson briefcase just like this, For college graduation, I graduated from college in 2004. I wore this briefcase. I used this briefcase every day until 2015. I loved it. And I love Filson products. They're just, they make a great product. They used to be, they changed their slogan or they took this away. They used to be so bold as to have the slogan Filson might as well have the best. And I wish they wouldn't have changed it, but they did. But anyway, 2015, that bag had totally worn out. And so I sent it in for repair because Filson gives you a lifetime guarantee. And you know what they did in 2015? When I sent that old bag in that was worn and torn apart from 11 solid years of use, they sent me this bag free of charge, no questions asked. That's a true lifetime guarantee. I love this company. And I've I've bought a lot of Filson products. I've got a lot of bags. I've got my little dock kit. I've got the hanging bag. I love their products. But as much as I love Filson, it is a marketplace relationship. They like me because I give them money. I like them because they give me good bags, right? And it's a marketplace relationship. They have to market themselves because guess what? Orvis and Patagonia and all these other companies are out there saying, you should buy one of our bags. But Filson has stayed true. They've continued to uphold their marketplace value. And so I continue to give them money and they continue to give me bags. Now that is a very different kind of relationship than the relationship that I have with John Kellis, my son. I don't have a marketplace relationship with him. Our relationship is not based on the function of the relationship. It's based on this blood covenant that we have as father and son. When I go pick John Kellis up after church, he doesn't have to say, hey dad, choose me. Look at what I did. I'm better than all these other seven year olds, I promise. Look at what I colored for you in Sunday school today. Look at the verse I memorized, right? No, he doesn't have to market himself to me. my relationship with him is not based on the exchange of goods. Now, in a covenantal relationship, goods are exchanged. Like when I buy the Filson product, I give them money, they give me a bag. I'm happy to get it, but I expect it. But after church today, if John Kellis gives me a Father's Day gift, I don't think he's going to. But if he did... I'd be like, oh my gosh, John Kellis, well, you remembered me, you, you, you love me. There's an exchange within the covenant that is, that is precious. It's not what the covenant's based on. It's not what the relationship's based on because it's a covenant relationship. It's, it's, he is my son because he's my son, not because he's the best seven-year-old, not because he, you know, is the most affordable seven-year-old. He's my son because he's my son. That is the definition of a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. When you marry a woman, when you marry a man, you make a covenant with them. And whether they're marketable or not, right? This shows up in the vows, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, right? When they're really marketable, better, rich, healthy, or when they're not very marketable at all, Poor, worse, sick. It doesn't matter. That doesn't affect the covenant because it's not a marketplace relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. You are bound. But dating is a marketplace relationship. That's what makes this so weird, right? You're entering into a covenant relationship, but dating intrinsically is a marketplace relationship. You're trying to make yourself marketable, right? I just looked over and saw my friend Josh Youssef. I'm sure the first night that Josh took Emily out, he wore his best shirt, you know? He looked through his closet. He was like, that's my best shirt. I'm going to wear it. I'm sure the first time they went out, he thought to himself, I better say all the good things tonight, right? I'm smart. I'm rich. I'm handsome, you know? You're marketing yourself. You're trying to convince that person to make a covenant with you. You don't go on your first date and say, look, let me tell you all the horrible things about myself tonight. And because these are two very different kinds of relationships, the church has kind of struggled with this. I grew up in a time when there was a book that was going around called True, or uh, called I've Kissed Dating Goodbye. You all remember that. i Kissed Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris. And I don't ascribe to that book, but I understand what Joshua Harris was trying to do. He understood marriage is a covenant relationship, dating is a marketplace relationship. What do we do? We got to get rid of this. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with marketplace relationships, right? So, the problem with dating is not that it is a marketplace relationship, the problem with dating is sin <laughs> that happens within the marketplace relationship but there's nothing intrinsically wrong with marketplace relationships most of your relationships are marketplace relationships right the papas are moving to florida right i'm sure that the papas go to a grocery store or go get their hair cut somewhere or do this or do that and they have a really good relationship with the people they shop with or the people they do these things with and they're very kind but those people aren't going to move to Florida with them just because they're moving because they understand this is not, but their children are going to move to Florida with them as much as we wish the Papa kids would stay here because that's a covenantal relationship. It's, it's a different kind of relationship. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with marketplace relationships. It, it just can be an awkward and sometimes scary thing to move from marketplace to covenant. But we live in a world of dating, and I don't think that it's intrinsically bad. In fact, I think it can actually be a good way to meet someone that you can enter into the covenant of marriage with, so long as a few things are in place. So again, I want to give you some things. For those of you who are dating, those of you who might date, parents that have kids who might date, I want, I want to give you four things to remember as you date first, first. Remember who you are. If you're a Christian and you want to date, remember who you are. Remember that your identity does not come from who you date or how good-looking the person that you date is or how many dates you go on or whether or not you are dating. You live in a culture that defines everything by sexual desire. We've already talked about this. That has permeated the world. It's Freudian, oppressive philosophy. But that's not who you are. If you are a Christian, you're a child of God. You've been given value by the almighty God. And in Christ, you can know God. And I want you to hear this. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Not romance, not dating. Jesus is life. I was having a conversation with a guy one time, and he, was, he came to me and he said, I want to follow Jesus. And, uh, and he said, but I'm dating a woman, and she's not a believer. And I said, well, hey, man, you know, that, those two don't go together. You, you, Jesus has said to you, he said to us, that his design, his plan for us is that we would be yoked with other believers. That's, that's, that's what Jesus has commanded us. He's told us, and he's done it because he loves us. And so I said, you need to go to her and say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus now, and he's told me that I need to be in a relationship with another believer. And so I, I, I invite her to follow the Lord, but if she won't, explain to her that you, you can't ultimately marry her. And he said, well, I can't do that. And I said to him, brother, somewhere along the line, you have believed, you have come to believe that romance and dating and relationship is life what I'm telling you is Jesus is life. He is so fundamentally more life-giving. The Zoe that he gives is so much more rich than that. So, remember who you are. Second, remember who they are. Remember, if you're a Christian dating another Christian, that relationship might not work out, okay? In fact, I'll go ahead and break it to you. If you have a dating relationship, like, hopefully only one of your dating relationships ultimately works out, right? Most of them don't work out. But primarily, before your boyfriend-girlfriend, she is your sister in Christ. He is your brother in Christ. You're going to know them and be around them for a long time in eternity. Are you conducting yourself... In such a way that you can celebrate one another as brother and sister in Christ, as part of God's kingdom people, even if it doesn't work out. You know, are you treating her? Rule of thumb, I like to say are you treating her the way you would like another guy to treat your own sister? Are you treating him the way that you would like another gal to treat your brother? fundamentally, it may not work out. And look, if it doesn't work out, I understand it's sad. It may be a little awkward, but can you worship together? Can you celebrate who one another is in Christ? Is is that how you're conducting your relationship where there's health afterward? Remember who they are. Number three, remember your family. So often where I see people really get involved or really get in trouble in dating relationships when they start dating someone and then they disappear from the life of the body. They aren't showing up to their group. They aren't serving. They aren't showing up to worship. You just know. I'll just say, if there's somebody that you know that's like this, you just know that's a bad sign. That is a bad sign. God's design is that if you're around another Christian, any other Christian, but particularly one that you're dating, you would actually be stirring one another along toward faith and good deeds. Is this relationship producing holiness in you, or is it creating a desire to hide in you from the other people around you? Remember your family. And then finally, and kind of similarly, remember the Lord. There is a refrain in the Old Testament over and over and over. God says, you are my people, therefore, be holy as I am holy. When I was young and single, and again, I didn't always do this perfectly, certainly. But um, well, my buddies and I, we'd always challenge one another, look, bring her home more holy than she was when you picked her up. It's a goal of every date. Bring her home more holy, more like Jesus, than she was when you picked her up. Gals, send him home more holy than he was when He picked you up. That actually is, if you understand Ephesians 5, God's goal in relationship that, that we, that men and women, would sanctify one another. Is that happening? I say, if, if you're committed to bring her home more holy than she was when you picked her up, you can date as much as you want. Again, marketplace relationship is not the problem necessarily. It's, it's how we do it. Remember who you are, remember who they are, remember your family, and remember the Lord. So we've talked about humanity, we've talked about dating, I still have a little bit more time left. So what is sex? Sex is a sacrament, and I wanna explain this. Some of us Protestants, we don't really understand what sacraments are. A sacrament is a physical sign of something spiritual, right? So when we celebrate baptism, what are we doing? We're celebrating that we have died in our sin, but that we've been rescued by Christ to live a new life. In Him, we have died and we've been raised. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're celebrating the covenant that we have with the Lord that was made by His body and that was made by His blood. These are sacraments. They're physical things that we do to remember something spiritual, something behind them that has happened. So let me give you a definition of sex. Sex is a sacrament of marriage that physically points to the whole self union between husband and wife. It's a sign of the covenant. It is given to humanity for pleasure, honor, intimacy, procreation, and holiness or sanctification. If you, if you look at the Genesis text when uh, Adam and Eve first come together, it, it's not just a sexual union. It's a whole life union, right? It's a whole self-donation. She's a partner to him in all of their work. They were to keep the garden together. They were to have children and fill the earth together. They were to image God together. There was a whole self, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional. There was a whole self-union. And we actually see it in the text. Genesis 2.24 it says this. I'm going to help you out here with a little bit of the language. I think I've got it on the screen there. Therefore, a man, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, Dabak, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, Basar. Hold fast. I actually don't love the definition. That's the ESV. I kind of prefer the old King James, cleave. You ever heard that word? It cleave unto one another. It's a better word, I think. It, 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 it gets more at what Debak is talking about. There's a cleaving. It's a whole self-union that's happening between the husband and the wife. The, the man and the woman should join together, should cleave together in every way, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional. And then they shall become one flesh, basar. This is a sign of flesh. When the flesh comes together, hear the language. The Dabak comes together. The whole self comes together. Basar is intrinsically connected to Dabak. See. It's the same language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6 that we looked at today. Do you not know that you that your bodies, and the Greek here is soma? Soma is like debak. It's that whole self, your bodies, your soul, who you are, your whole personhood. Do you not know that your whole personhood are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one whole self with her, for the two shall become one sarks. Sark's is the Greek kind of for the fleshy part of the body. Do you see what's happening here? What Paul and what Moses are saying in these books is, look, when the sarks comes together, when the basar comes together, it's more than just flesh coming together. This is, this is why Paul is kind of using the song that we referenced earlier. The food is meant for the stomach. and He's saying, no, <laughs> that's not how it goes. It's not that you can just do whatever you want to with your body, because when the sarks comes together, the soma comes together. When the basar comes together, the debak comes together. When the flesh comes together, it is a whole self donation that's happening the sarks and the soma, the flesh and the whole self should not be separated. Sex is only right and good and shameless and life-giving when it happens accompanied by a whole self union, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, in all ways. F.F. Bruce says, Paul displays a psychological insight into human sexuality, which is altogether exceptional by first century standards, he insists that is an act which engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. This is why there's really no such thing as casual sex. You can do it, but there's no wholeness in it. There's no true rest and peace in it. It's why when it's happening, you feel compelled to promise and to say, I love you and to say, I'll be with you forever or whatever it is, because you know that the sarks and the soma shouldn't be separated. They're a part of one another. It's a whole self-donation going on. And this brings up a follow-up question, then why is the perversion of sex such a negative thing? Why is it so damaging? Well, I'll ask you guys, what do you call it when the soul and the body separate from one another? Like, what's the word that we have? Like, what do we use to describe that? And the, the word that we use to describe that is death. Sex outside of the covenant of marriage is violent. It rips you apart. It's not free. It's not God's design. Sex is a covenantal good, and when it is exchanged within the covenant of marriage, oh, it is so honoring and joy-giving and life-giving. When you take it outside of a covenant and make it a marketplace good, it becomes a marketplace good. That's why outside of marriage, you're always having to market yourself, right? I sure hope he liked it. (laughs) I sure hope he doesn't see one of the other products and go after them. No, it was designed not as a marketplace good. That's not God's design for this. It was designed as a covenantal good to be shared for holiness and life and union as a sacrament, as a sign of the whole self-union between a husband and a wife. Just like God said in the beginning, the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. So this brings up a follow-up question then. Why is a right understanding so good? Look at, look at the definition again. Sex is a sacrament of marriage that physically points to the whole self-union between a husband and wife. It is given to humanity for pleasure, honor, intimacy, procreation, holiness, and sanctification. There's so much I could talk about here, and I'm out of time almost, but a couple of things that I just want to mention. These first three words I can talk about together, pleasure, honor, intimacy. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, know how to control your body in holiness and honor. There's this idea that when we follow God's design for these things, there's honor, there's life that's exchanged. It's not just recreation. You know, I I remember the first time I I really understood this, I had just gotten married to Paige, and I I was pastoring First Baptist Church Covington at this time, And First Baptist Church, wonderful church, I love the church, but golly, they, you know, about wanted to do me in from time to time. And I had gone to one of these deacons meetings and it was just rough and I'd been beaten up and down and I got home and I was exhausted and I felt like the worst pastor ever and Paige is there and we start having dinner together, and she starts to give me the signal, you know, like, it could go well for you tonight. (laughs) And what followed wasn't recreation. It wasn't, we weren't taking anything from one another. What followed was her and me coming together and honoring one another, giving life to one another. That's, That's what happens when a covenantal good is exchanged. It's given us for procreation. Man, when, when you're married and you start to have children, it's wonderful, right? It's not an unwanted pregnancy. It's not a bad thing. It's not something you're ashamed of. It's a joyful thing. You, you love it, and then you enter into this amazing project together. And actually, the, I love the thing there, holiness. The last part of the definition. We go back to the definition. Holiness, sanctification. It, 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 the Bible is not afraid of this, right? I think some of you may have kind of grown up in a Platonistic church where flesh things were bad. No, again, from beginning to end, the Bible begins with two naked people singing to one another, and we see this kind of union. I mean, the last scene of the Bible is about marriage. We see this throughout the whole thing. No, there, there is something that is holy and sanctifying John Witte says, the bodily exposure that arouse and accompany sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing if it is the concrete sign of what's happening in the whole relationship. So it only makes sense that sexual relations be confined to marriage. For mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment, but the fabric of lifetimes weaving. Look, Hugh Hefner did not invent sex. <laughs> God did, and He made it for His glory and for His purposes. He, he made it to display and express something of His glory, and, and in worshiping church, I want you to hear this, this, is, this matters, it's important. God has designed us. If you're self-determined here today and you believe that you are determining your own value in life, again, nothing I've said today made sense to you, but if you believe that God has created you and that he gave you life and that he's given you your body and that he's given you your time and that he's given you work and that he's given you companionship and these are things that God has given you so that his glory may be displayed in you, then listen, it matters. These things matter. Really matter. God is wanting to display something through you, and when we follow His design, we follow His His order. He is glorified. The picture goes forward, and when we don't, His glory is disordered. You know how the Bible ends? The whole Bible <laughs> ends with marriage. This union of Christ finally getting married to his bride, finally being joined to his people. Let's go to that slide. I want to read this. This is from Revelation. Um, it says, the, uh, keep going. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Next slide. And the angel said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now here's the good news I have for all of us. You know how you get invited? (laughs) You know how you get invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's not by self-determination It's not even by, I want you to hear this, it's not even by your good Christian behavior. You get invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb because the Lamb invites you. And the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was willing to come to this world. And to live this life, to identify with us, to identify with us, sexual beings, marriage beings, relational beings, to identify with us in every way, and to do so in total honor of his father, in total obedience. And he was willing to take on all of our sin, all of our perversions. We've all messed up on this. I want you to hear me, okay? Look around you. If somebody's looking at you like, oh, what about you think? Oh, are they looking at me? Do they know something? Look, at, look back at them. <laughs> Be like, you're perverted too. <laughs> we've all messed up on this. We've all, we've all, but, but that's not how you get invited. You get invited because Jesus, the Lamb, was willing to invite you, and he was willing to take on your sin, and he was willing to take on my sin, and he was willing to die in our place. And he overcame all of the cost of our sin, and he rose from the dead, and he invites you if you look to him in faith. So, as we respond, I invite you to look to Jesus in faith. No matter where you are, if you have been faithfully and blissfully married for 50 years, look to Jesus in faith. That's the invitation to the real marriage that counts. Or if you're single and sad, look to Jesus in faith. That's the invitation. That's the marriage that really counts. And to help us look to Jesus in faith, Jesus has given us a sign, a physical sign, of what he's done for us through the Lord's Supper.